Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the current wave of strikes and labor movements through the lens of pandemic economics and the history of businesses abusing workers. Clips today are from Democracy Now!, In the Thick!, The Takeaway!, Planet Money!, and Pitchfork Economics!, and with members-only clips from The Strange World of Econ! and another from Planet Money!. We begin today's show with what a number of people are calling Striketober, as workers across the United States and a wide variety of industries are walking off the job. Thousands have gone on strike at food plants operated by Kellogg's, Nabisco, and Frito-Lay over work hours, pay, and benefits. Last week, more than 24,000 Kaiser Permanente healthcare workers in California authorized a strike. Now, 10,000 United Automobile Workers members members at John Deere are also on strike, saying they were forced to work overtime while the company made record profits. The list goes on and includes more than 1,000 coal miners on strike at Warrior Med in Alabama, as we've covered here at Democracy Now! This comes as the union representing television and film production crews averted a strike of some 60,000 workers just hours before a midnight deadline Saturday, when it reached a tentative agreement with an association of Hollywood producers representing companies like Walt Disney, Netflix, and Amazon. The tentative deal brings members of the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees higher pay, longer breaks, and better health care and pension benefits. Some members say the deal doesn't go far enough, and about 40,000 members from 13 Hollywood locals must still approve the pact. These are two IATSE members in Los Angeles, costume maker Yuen Tusan and Thomas Pixelon, who works in sound production in a video by More Perfect Union. We take one break at six hours on the contracts that our unions negotiated long ago. They're trying not to actually have us break, because for them, if they don't break us for lunch, they pay a meal penalty. Those meal penalties haven't been updated since the mid-80s. For them, it's pennies. They can make us work 10 hours, 11 hours straight and pay four to five meal penalties, but it doesn't affect them at the end of the day when it's Amazon and the show has a $300 million budget. We see the big companies producing big budget uh, projects, and we know that they're popular, they're selling, and they're, people are watching it, but our crew who's working on those projects are getting paid like five to nearly $10 less an hour, just because it's new media. For more on this U.S. strike wave, we're joined in Pittsburgh by Alex Press, staff writer at Jacobin, where one of her recent pieces is headlined, U.S. workers are in a militant mood. She's also host of a podcast about Amazon workers called Primer. In a few minutes, we'll also speak with a John Deere worker on strike in Iowa, and we'll talk with a representative of the taxi workers who are going on hunger strike in New York. But first, let's look at this strike that was averted, the IATSE workers, 60,000 of them. Alex Press, can you talk about IATSE and then go broader to Striketober? Sure. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Amy. This is a big story, as you said, based on sheer numbers, right? 60,000 IATSE members voted nearly 99 percent in favor of authorizing a strike, and 90 percent of eligible members cast ballots in that vote. That would have begun a strike on Monday that had they not reached that deal late on Saturday night— 
That strike would have been the largest one in the private sector in the United States since won by 74,000 workers at GM in 2007. The numbers on that strike authorization vote reflect a charged up, mobilized membership. The reason for their sense of urgency, their willingness to risk losing a paycheck going on strike, is motivated by what was said in that video by the worker, the schedule of an IATSE member. Specifically, they're concerned with what's called turnaround times, which is the minimum amount of time a worker has from when she leaves work to when she is expected to be back. IATSE has secured 10-hour turnarounds in this tentative agreement, um, which is progress for some members who had nine hours, but many members already had 10. And it's important to remember that in this industry, 12 and 14 hour days are the norm, but 18, even 20 hour days are not unheard of. So it's really important that workers have the time to commute home, to eat, to spend time with families and to get a good night's sleep before having to commute back to work. Workers are saying, you know what, I've had 10 hours. It's not enough. We want 12. You know, the other thing people should keep in mind here is that the agreement is called tentative for a reason, right? Unions are democratic institutions and it's up to the membership to decide whether they're going to ratify that agreement. These are definitely members who have concerns around other things like funding for pensions. The raises you mentioned for many members are only 3% a year, whereas currently inflation is 5%. Though for the lowest paid IATSE members, they've gotten a very significant raise. You know, this is a story to keep an eye on, right? The vote is not happening tomorrow. Members have to see the full details of the agreement and then they'll vote on it and discuss it amongst each other. As you said, though, there's a broader moment going on right now. There's the strike at John Deere and you're going to have a worker on who's on strike. That's great. Um, and there, too, the workers, you know, rejected this contract, this tentative agreement overwhelmingly um, because Deere has seen immense profits, most profitable year on record. Their CEO got a 160 percent raise. And meanwhile, John Deere presented the workers with the uh, ultimatum that they would have to actually accept concessions. John Deere asked them, told them uh, that new hires would not have pensions anymore. And so again, you know, these are illustrative of a moment where workers are willing to fight back. Right. They understand they have more leverage right now. Um, the, mar the labor market is tighter than usual. It's harder to replace them if they go on strike. Um, and they're not willing to accept bad deals. And where they already have bad deals, if they're in unions, they're willing to try to fight to get what they've given up before back. That said, there's a flip and, side to that, which is, oh. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, uh, Alex. I wanted to ask you about the 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 impact uh, of the uh, of the newcomer the relative newcomers to the industry to the film and and video industry i'm talking about the, it would used to be just the old hollywood studios but now we have these giant uh uh, digital companies, uh, Netflix, Amazon, and Apple that are pouring billions into the production of content. How have these new forces affected the the uh, the labor conditions? Uh, obviously, there are more workers, but how have they affected the overall labor conditions of the industry? Yeah, it's it's a couple things. First, they've sort of sped up the amount of work that's happening, right? Everyone knows that plenty of people during the pandemic were at home binging Netflix, right? These streamers, as they're called, these streaming platforms, just have an immense amount of demand for content. They're trying to churn it out. And that then is translated to the workers themselves who are constantly sort of being moved from project to project. And importantly, the way that it is allowed for them to have worse working conditions to be sped up, as it were, as we might say in the labor movement, is that these companies have different agreements with IATSE in 2009, they struck a deal with IATSE when these were still experiments, right? Netflix was just barely out of the time of being something that was mailing you a DVD at home, right? These were not the enormous behemoths they are now. And there was an agreement struck that said workers would need to be more flexible here. They, I think the wording was that these are uncertain economies. 
Um, so that a deal was agreed upon. That said, also in that agreement said, when things have changed, if these companies prove profitable, both parties will recognize that and this agreement will change, right? And there's been this demand for the work from the workers that it's obviously the time is up. These are now the dominant players in the industry. I mean, Amazon, Netflix, these are the new power. Um, and so it really doesn't make a lot of sense for them to be able to not contribute as much to pensions, to pay workers less, things like that. Yeah. And, and generally speaking, there's been a lot of talk about the labor shortage right now, the le- the increased leverage that workers, whether they're unionized or not, have in demanding uh, better conditions. Uh, there, but there's also been a, there was an article in today's New York Times talking about the number of workers who, as a result of the pandemic, no longer feel they need to to uh, be chained to a nine to five job. Uh, could you talk about how the the labor movement itself is uh, is uh, is being transformed as a result of the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. We see this reflected right even among non-union workers in what people are calling the Great Resignation. The numbers came out from the Department of Labor recently that showed that in August, almost three percent of the U.S. workforce quit their jobs. So about four million or so workers, which is an enormous number of people who are saying, you know what, I'm sick of this, I'm leaving. A lot of those workers are trying to switch industries. A lot of them are finding better deals or trying to. They're trying to navigate the labor market themselves. But it really reflects a sort of reevaluation of priorities, right? I mean, workers I speak to all the time across various industries say that their experience during the pandemic showed them that it's not worth it to risk your life and the health of your family for a job, for an employer who doesn't treat you well, who might be willing to kill you, who not, might not take the right um, protections that you need to protect yourself from COVID. Um, And workers have said, uh, especially, I mean, IATSE is a great example of this, but also those workers in the food manufacturing sector who've been on strike because they were being worked 80 hours a week. They said, you know what? A good life consists of family, of free time, of pleasure. It does not just consist of work. And if that's not a deal that's on offer, I'm not keeping this job anymore. Lauren, help us break all this down. What is driving these workers to stand up and ask for more now? Yeah, so basically during the pandemic, a lot of people stopped working. They were laid off. They were decided not to work. The number of Americans who are people in the country who are working vastly shrunk. And as things have slowly opened up, the number of employers seeking workers has outpaced the number of people who are interested in going back to work. So you end up with what is sort of like a tight labor market where workers have more leverage than they have in recent years or like in recent history to sort of demand more from their employers. So this takes like several different forms. One of the most common things we're seeing is people are quitting their jobs. So for one month, I think it was 4.3 million workers in the U.S. quit their jobs. That's 3% of the entire U.S. workforce. So that's a huge amount of people quitting their jobs. That's a big number. Yeah, I think that's an all-time record. Wow. And they're doing that because, for one, they're fed up. A lot of people are risking their lives for minimum wage during the pandemic. You know, people in fast food, people who are deemed essential workers. And they have, you know, opportunity now to 
seek out other jobs. So maybe that's because they got stimulus checks mm-hmm. or on unemployment. They have a little more wiggle room. So that's going on on the one end. A lot of those workers aren't unionized. A lot of those workers are in hospitality and restaurants and fast food where they don't have unions. Mm-hmm. On the other side, you have a small amount of workers who are in unions who saw their contracts expire this year. And they're also fed up, right? They also have been working insane hours during the pandemic. I was talking to a striking worker at Kellogg's who said they hadn't had a day off for 200 days, including weekends. Wow. They're working 16-hour shifts. And so they're also fed up and they're seeing their companies make, like we just mentioned about John Deere, like huge profits. I think billionaires during the pandemic got 63% richer. So like companies are doing really well. They're not getting raises. They're also seeing like workers in fast food get raises and they're seeing people not maybe in the John Deere industry, but people around them being, you know, restaurants offering more money and they're saying, you know, wow, we're fed up too. And they're sort of inspired to go on strike. And so I think you've seen a lot of workers walk out at large companies and I guess I wouldn't say there's quite a strike wave yet, but we're seeing a lot of strikes being authorized, like gigantic strikes being authorized. So it could end up being really huge. I think what we're definitely seeing is like increased militancy and enthusiasm, like you're talking about on Twitter and Instagram Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. you know, even coming up with this name, Striketober. So that's sort of the backdrop. They learn from Mad Men. Get a catchy phrase. It could be like strike member. I'm trying to think of the next month, November. (laughs) Strike member. I I don't know. Luis, what about you? What do you think are some of the conditions that are impacting people to take this job and shove it? Sorry, I just totally like (laughs) dated myself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, as the rich got into motion, you know, riding their Peloton bikes in the worst months of the pandemic, (laughs) you know, workers got into gear for a different kind of motion across the country. That's what we're seeing. Damn, that's a lie. <laughs> you know, like, you know, Lauren just mentioned, you know, there are thousands of workers, uh, farm equipment workers across Iowa, Illinois, Kansas, and Colorado and Georgia that have walked off their jobs, joining thousands of cereal workers in Michigan, Tennessee, Nebraska, Pennsylvania. Their coal miners have been on strike in Alabama, approaching eight months, nurses in Buffalo, New York, in Worcester, Massachusetts. And thousands more waiting in the wings, you know, to go on strike. I would agree with Lauren that we're not quite at the moment of a strike wave. To give you a comparison, in 2019, there were 425,000 workers that went out on strike. Right now, we have about 24,000 workers that went on strike for strike tover, mm. right? So it's a small number of people that are out on strike, but there is a generalized sense. Mm-hmm. You know, the spirit of militancy is in the air and that's what people are picking mm. up on. So that's why 30 million workers have quit their jobs from January to August. And why not? Right. Like you said, Julio, like, you know, take his job and shove it. That's basically the attitude. (laughs) Right. I love this, though. The spirit of militancy is in the air. Yeah. Look, at the end of the day, many of these workers who are fighting to unionize are also fighting for their own safety. And that's what people don't realize is like Mm. any of the good working conditions in this country are a result of workers fighting for it. Yeah. I just got back from Mississippi, as it were, in the middle of the summer I was there, and just the working conditions 
the freezing cold, the, you know, numbness, the repetitive, the feeling like you can't say anything because you're undocumented. And I can't even tell you how many labor horror stories I've been hearing just from people that I know. Labor transportation horrors, food preparation horrors, employment agency horrors. So for the immigrant worker, in fact, like this notion of striking? Yeah. Impossible. It's can we even own our voice? So Luis, can you talk about some of the implications of these labor strikes when it comes to undocumented? And uh, many of them are essential workers. Absolutely. I mean, I, I live in New York, as you know, and we saw during the pandemic Los Deliberistas Unidos, which kind of coalesced into a movement at the height of the pandemic. Many of the workers themselves hail from places like Guatemala and Mexico and from places like Bangladesh, and they're still organizing. They just recently won you know, access to the bathroom. Mm. Can you imagine that in the 21st century? Mm. You know, Senator Schumer is trying to divert some of the funding from from the federal level to create rest stops for them so that they have a place to rest in between deliveries. So we saw workers really take to the streets and make demands. I mean, Lauren herself covered a lot of the stories during the pandemic of workers at fast food restaurants and in other places just walking out or at poultry plants, just shutting things down over safety concerns. Yeah, I myself reported for The Nation magazine on a story in Gainesville, Georgia, where six poultry workers died from a chemical leak accident working at a poultry plant. Many of them were undocumented. When you read the stories and I spoke to families, they referred to names different than the ones that were printed in the paper because they were you know, they were known by these other names, assumed names that they worked under, which the company was fully aware of mm -hmm. and exploited and took care yeah. to use that to their advantage to blackmail them in case they reported any safety irregularities and so forth. Right. So, yes, the conditions that undocumented workers have faced have always been horrendous in this country. But workers have always risen up and they have always found a way to fight back. And they have done that. I mean, I was a high schooler in 2006 and I participated in the big marches in response to the Sensenbrenner bill. Mm -hmm. So the pro-immigration marches. Yes. Yes. So there has always been that threat of deportation of like severe consequences for for daring to stand up for your rights and to demand dignity and respect. But people have always met that challenge. And I think we saw that during the pandemic. The only thing that I think it's crucial and that it's why we need a revitalized labor movement is that sometimes these actions happen at the individual level, which Lauren referred to when she talked about, you know, the people that have quit their jobs and have said, fuck this shit. I'm not going to take it anymore. Go fuck yourself. Mm -hmm. And we see that on Reddit all the time. There's people yeah. posting <laughs> on Reddit when they quit and their resignation letters. But the difference is when workers are organized, right? That's when they can really marshal their collective right. power to make real changes. I think owners definitely struggled during the pandemic. I would say the struggles of workers were crisis level before the pandemic and with the pandemic, people lost their homes, lost their you know ability to feed their children. I mean, the struggle and crisis got so much worse. But but listen, during the before the pandemic, as you said, we had this direct legacy of slavery in our industry. 
Um, you know, at emancipation, the restaurant lobby won the ability to hire newly freed slaves, not pay them anything, and have them live entirely on tips. And so they created this very unique system in America. We're the only country that does it, allowing restaurants to pay little or nothing and having workers live on tips. And so we went from zero dollars at emancipation as an attempt to hire Black people for free, all the way up to the ridiculous $2.13 an hour today and even before the pandemic you're talking about an overwhelmingly pop, uh, women population of women uh, struggling with the highest rates of sexual harassment and poverty of almost any industry in the US well with the pandemic these workers uh, first many of them were not able to access unemployment insurance two thirds of the workers we surveyed and we surveyed 250,000 workers after the pandemic shutdown two thirds told us they couldn't get unemployment insurance because in most states they were told their wages were too low to qualify for benefits. And when they did go back, they found that tips had gone way down because sales were down and harassment and hostility had gone way up. And I could say a lot more about that, but that combination really became frankly life-threatening and you saw mass exodus last year itself. Savru, before we get to the um, the question of the harassment, can you explain just one tick more on the unemployment insurance issue? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it was it, it really was that was a, a really a moment of epiphany for so many workers, um, because when you get a wage of two or three dollars an hour, as it is in 43 states, 43 states, including blue states like New York and Illinois and Massachusetts have a sub-minimum wage. That's a direct legacy of slavery. So you're talking about uh, you know, anywhere from $2 to $5 in most states. New York, the wage is 66% of the wage, all a direct legacy of slavery. Well, these workers you know, they lived most of their income. Uh, the vast majority of their income was from tips. That 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 small wage, that subminimum wage, was so low it often went entirely to taxes, and they were living off their tips. And when they went to go apply for unemployment insurance, most states told them it looks like you earn too little to qualify for benefits. It looks like you uh, didn't work enough hours. So. At the start of the pandemic, you know, when the pandemic uh, shutdown occurred, about 6 million restaurant workers lost their jobs. That's one in four Americans who lost their jobs was in the restaurant industry when the, when the pandemic shut down the economy last March. And we heard from so many workers. One was uh, a woman named Sarah May from Michigan, worked in a small dive bar in a small town in Michigan, um, and told us that she had religiously reported her tips to the IRS. The wage in Michigan is $3.52 an hour. But when she went to apply for unemployment insurance, she was told that her employer never reported her tips. And it looked like she had just earned that $3 wage. And so in total, it looked to the state of Michigan that she had not actually worked in full time. She had not worked enough hours to qualify for benefits. So she couldn't get state unemployment insurance. Then when federal unemployment insurance came out, it was supposedly based on, not based on your income. It was supposed to be just on loss of a job. She was told she'd be eligible for that, but because it came through the state of Michigan system and she was marked as a denial by the state of Michigan, she was never able to access those funds. And so this is the incredible outrageous irony of the moment. Here you have some people claiming, oh, these workers are lazy, staying home, collecting unemployment insurance, when the truth is a huge majority of these workers never received it or, or received very little 
because their wages were so low. And, and it was at that moment, that was the beginning of the exodus. We heard from so many workers at that moment last spring, wait a second, if the government is telling me I earn too little to qualify for benefits like everybody else who's been working full-time or more than full-time, then probably I earn too little if the state is telling me that. And I should never have put up with this sub-minimum wage to begin with. And so when we did the, the survey you mentioned this May, um, surveying 3,000 workers and you know 54% of those who remain in the industry. And mind you, so many left last year, but this year, 54%, more than half of those who remain in the industry say they're leaving. And 78%, nearly eight in 10, say the primary thing that's going to make them stay in the industry or come back to work in restaurants is a full minimum wage with tips on top. So there has been this just moment of epiphany. Wait a second. If everybody's saying I earn too little, the government is saying I'm, I earn too little to get benefits. And then on top of that, you want me now to enforce social distancing and mask rules and COVID vaccination card rules on the same customers from whom I'm supposed to get tips to make up my income. But even with those tips, I'll never be considered earning enough to actually qualify for benefits for everybody else. Honestly, I'm done. And you can take this job and shove it. All right. Talk to me. Um, expand on that that aspect that is the um, requirement of front of the house workers to enforce the masking rules. What is masculine or ma- yes, masculine harassment? Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's first of all, it's important to note that our industry had the highest rates of sexual harassment of any industry in the United States prior to the pandemic. Um, we work closely with Professor Catherine McKinnon, who's Many people know legendary law professor who really coined the term sexual harassment and spent her life trying to make it illegal in the United States. And um, she did research with us and she, in her words, the rate of sexual harassment in our industry among tipped workers dwarfs all other sectors, including the military, because you have this overwhelmingly this workforce of that is overwhelmingly women um, that must tolerate inappropriate customer behavior to feed their families in tips. And the connection to the tip minimum wages is, is very clear when you look at the seven states that got rid of the subminimum wage many decades ago, California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Minnesota, Montana, and Alaska require full minimum wage with tips on top, have for decades, not only have higher small business growth rates, lost fewer restaurants during the pandemic, but also have one half the rate of sexual harassment in the industry because their women can count on a wage from their boss, like every other worker in every other industry. They don't have to put up with as much from male customers. They're not as dependent on the tip. And it was that power dynamic between women servers and male customers that got so much worse with the pandemic because with tips way down, because sales are down, and now this added responsibility to tell customers, put on a mask, sit six feet apart. Uh, now I need to see your COVID vaccination card you know, the the power dynamic of I need to get tips from these very same people resulted in really a very ugly situation in which we heard from thousands of women. I am repeatedly asked on every shift by male customers, take off your mask so I can see how cute you are before I decide how much to tip you. Take off your mask so I can see the pretty face of my server before I decide how much to tip. And what was truly intolerable in the past, you know, outrageous, humiliating, um, now became a matter of life and death. And so naturally, many people said, 
that's it. I'm done. I, you know, you are asking me to expose myself and my children and my family to the virus for the opportunity, for the chance at earning an income when I can go work in another industry and at least get the minimum wage or more from my employer without having to expose myself in this way for the chance to get a tip. You know, when you have lost, right? You have, yeah. o sea, no tienes nada que perder, then you will fight. And so the core of the labor movement is also many of these immigrant and undocumented workers, right? Yeah, it is. And then we talked about, you know, the pandemic. I think what's happened is this has been always the case, right? And this is the reality. But the pandemic has completely shined a massive light on this because these things weren't happening because of coronavirus this was happening before but now because it's a matter of life and death people start realizing wait a minute wait i signed up for this right and so that's where the labor movement is starting to move and it's actually not just happening in the united states i mean in november of last year in india right 250 million workers farmers and allies Think about that. 250 million people went on strike against the Modi government's attack on farmer protections, making it the biggest organized strike in history. Right. And let's just step back for a second. Did anyone see those front page headlines in U.S. media last year? Anybody? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not not in the major papers. No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, Luis was like they were people were on the Peloton and, and getting their Grubhub, you know, mm-hmm. and making sure that the delivery guys showed up. So like. When you talk about essential workers, but this was the largest, think about that, 250 million people. And some of these protests are still continuing today in India. But the other thing about all this, speaking about media coverage, there's this notion of a quote unquote labor shortage, that there are not enough workers. But what's really happening is what we've been saying, that this pandemic has given folks the leverage they need to demand better for themselves. So, Luis, after what we've seen since 2020, what lasting changes do you think are going to be happening or do you expect when it comes to workers' rights in this country? Are there going to be changes or is this just, oh, you know, once we pass this, like we're going to be back to the status quo? Yeah, I mean, I'm hopeful that the honorific of essential worker is actually realized organizationally. And workers begin to see themselves as workers and form unions, construction, poultry plants, and so forth. But there are also a lot of workers that are members of worker centers. And that's a crucial layer of the labor movement that's important to recognize, mm-hmm. that they do a lot of the organizing that goes unrecognized. So these domestic workers that I mentioned at the outset that were going to go on strike, yeah. you know, they work with very rich families. And what they're trying to do is band together and say, look, we're going to demand all of us collectively $20 or none of us is going to clean your house. Those are the kinds of solidarities that we need to build so that we can have a multiracial working class movement in this country. I like to say that solidarity needs to be experienced in order to be believed. And what I mean by that is that people need to see you out there doing the work, mm. standing in solidarity with fellow workers. And I hope that that happens. I think that 
what I would caution is that we have moments where people, there are these big upsurges and then they dissipate the energy. It doesn't leave anything really lasting. So I hope that that doesn't happen. Los Deliberistas is a model of workers that are continuing to organize, are expanding, figuring out how do we bring in folks that speak Bengali into a, this organization of predominantly indigenous workers from Mexico and mm-hmm. and Guatemala, whose second language is Spanish. Mm-hmm. Like, how do we have that conversation? Yeah. And I think that that's, I don't want to say the new face, but it's like what's happening next and now in terms of the labor movement. But this country, I mean, that's why I was like, watch those movies, because this country is built on the back of the labor and workers' rights movements that are tied to immigrant rights, that are tied to the movement for Black lives. Absolutely. Because, you know... Everything in this country over here was built with free labor of black people and indigenous people. Let's just be clear. It was free extracted labor. Oh, how easy that suddenly, you know, you have all the riches of, you know, legacy money, but it was built on black and brown backs. Exactly. So these movements have always been tied over 150 years ago. So Lauren, how have the movements for racial justice and immigrant rights, in fact, helped to shape and transform the labor movement as we know it. And and do you really, you know, you were like, I don't just cover immigrant workers, but is there a sense like they are the bloodline of what's next in the labor movement? Yeah, I mean, I think like you said, it's it's important to note the ways in which immigrants and people of color have been excluded from a lot of these movements, like the National Labor Relations Act itself, the like law that allows us to unionize, excludes domestic workers and farm workers. And so does the Fair Labor Standards Act, like those workers don't get overtime pay or minimum wage guarantees. And like you mentioned, of course, also the unions themselves have a long a legacy of racism, you know, the AFL, which is now the AFL-CIO, once banned African-Americans and racial minorities for joining. And that was like the big house of labor at the time. You know, I would also say it is impossible to talk about labor history and activism without talking about race. And, you know, MLK, the day before he was assassinated, he was out at the Memphis sanitation strike in 1968. Mm-hmm. The United Farm Workers in California has a long history. of, you know, mixing racial justice and, you know, economic justice, the labor movement. Honestly, I think I'm a product. Like when I'm like, that is what me conscientizó. It is what brought me to consciousness here was, in fact, United Farm Workers and Martin Luther King. And they were both, in the essence, tied to racial injustice and labor. Yeah. Yeah. Most recently in Alabama, or a lot of people were paying attention to earlier this year in in April, the first Amazon warehouse to have a union election in the history of the U.S. was in Bessemer, Alabama. And the messaging around that union drive was extremely, you know, focused on racial justice. More than 80% of workers at that facility are Black. And I believe over two thirds of Amazon's warehouses are people of color. There are, you know, a ton of ties. And I I just think, you know, even the labor movement itself, like union drives themselves can be framed as racial justice because we have evidence that black workers who are unionized are paid 14% more than their non-unionized peers. And Latino workers who are unionized get paid 20% more than their non-unionized peers. And this, you know, goes over into healthcare benefits, stuff like this. So 
to your last question about, you know, is this the future? I think a lot of people are saying this is the future of the labor movement because this is the part of the country that's growing. This is the people who are feeding us, the people who are the working class in this country, and they will continue to grow. You know, and it it comes down to what we talk about a lot of Futuro Media representation and creating your own lane. So I just need to call out a feature that we've done on Latino Rebels this year. Um, It's called Rise Up Foo. Rise Up Fool, right? Mm-hmm. And Tootie Alvarez, who's a truck driver from Chicago, one of the best writers I know. And he interviews Latino and Latina organizers in labor right now. That's all he does. And says, you know what? If we're going to change the representation and union membership, we have to show these faces of people doing the work and just start interviewing them. And people in the labor movement are like, wow, I didn't know that there were so many Latinos and Latinas in the labor movement. Mm -hmm. But Luis, take us home on this multiracial organizing. I know you've talked about it throughout the show, but what do you think is sort of the future? Like, where is that future? Where do we see it specifically? I know you mentioned the the Deliberistas in New York, but how are the connections being made to lead to more change? Yeah, I mean, I think one way that we can see that is by fighting for internal democracy within unions. So within the auto workers, there's a vote uh, referendum so that members can elect their own leaders. So I was in a meeting about two weeks ago with auto workers in Silao, Mexico, and auto workers in Detroit. And when Detroit workers went on strike, the Silao workers supported them in Mexico. Mm. And right now there have been some labor reforms in Mexico that have allowed, they used to call them chatro unions because they were part of the institutional revolutionary party. Basically, they were controlled by them and they were top down. So we have right now a movement for democracy within unions. One fact that I'd like to point out is that there are 14 million union members of those members Black workers represent the higher share, 12.3%. White workers, 10.7%. Latino workers, 9.8%. And Asian workers, 8.9%. So this means that we must, as much as we fight the boss, we must also fight for democracy within our unions so that they are reflective of the interests of the membership that they're there to serve. You may not think that time has a cost, but it does. Because whatever you're doing right now, you could be doing something else. You've made the choice to spend this hour talking to me. (laughs) You're doing it presumably because you get paid for the pleasure of my company, okay? (laughs) Dan says that some of the leading economic thinkers of the last century expected the gradual shortening of the work week would just keep going. None other than John Maynard Keynes, one of the most important figures in economics and imaginary friend of the show, famously predicted that we would all be working a 15-hour work week by 2030. Now, the man's long since dead. I don't want to make fun of the dead people. But unless something happens in nine years or so, he was really wrong. Dan says your buddy Keynes' prediction that we'd all be working dramatically less appears to have been particularly wrong when it comes to the U.S., The U.S. has diverged from the world's other wealthy economies since the late 1970s when it comes to how many hours employees work each year. And how much of an outlier are we in terms of our workaholism? Well, if you take hours per year, at this point, we're probably 1,800 and some hours per worker per year. The next country, which is the U.K., would be about 50 or 60 hours less. 
Places like France and Germany would be hundreds of hours less. Now, Dan points out workers in Europe are generally still working 40-hour weeks. But over the course of the year, employees end up getting more time off overall because they have a lot more paid vacation. And at the end of the day, Dan says the difference between working hours in the U.S. and other wealthy nations is political will. The democracies in Western and Northern Europe have given workers more pay time off, such as sick leave and parental leave, as well as creating more new holidays. But in the U.S., things have been much slower to change. What has changed? In one word, nothing, darn it. That's exactly the problem. Nothing has changed. Dan argues that the vast majority of companies might be hesitant to cut employee hours because it could put them at a disadvantage with their competitors. And Dan says they're afraid of how it could affect the bottom line. I don't see how if people work less, we're going to keep total productivity as high as it currently is. In other words, doing that has a cost. That cost might come in the form of decreased productivity, so a company might have to serve fewer customers or make fewer widgets, or the cost could come from having to hire more people to keep call centers open and assembly lines humming like before. And those costs could be even steeper in a tight labor market like we're seeing right now. Of course, companies can save money when they cut hours. In manufacturing, for instance, less time on the factory floor would mean fewer expensive workplace injuries, less burnout, and less turnover. And we know constantly replacing your workers can be expensive. These are some of the trade-offs that companies are having to make as they experiment with a shorter week. Basecamp, Shopify, even Shake Shack have all tried out versions recently. But how permanent or widespread those experiments will become is still up in the air. In the case of Natalie Nagel's company, Wildbit, she says they've thrived working a four-day week. And she was able to keep paying her employees what they made during five days a week. Though she did have to hire a few more customer service folks because most of their clients were still stuck on the 9-to-5 grind. Natalie does admit the company probably hasn't grown as rapidly or produced as many new products as they might have. And she says that's probably made it less attractive to some of the more traditionally ambitious, you could say work-obsessed, potential new hires from the tech world. I am positive that there are people who do not apply to come work for us because of our culture, because we are not a hustle, you know, really scale your career quickly kind of place. But Natalie says all these trade-offs are part of a broader decision she's made to put her company's long-term sustainability above short-term growth. And so far, it's working. The company has been growing steadily. Her employees generally love having an extra day each week, you know, to have a life, run errands, take care of family, try out a hobby. And Wildbit has become a poster child for companies who are rethinking work. Would you describe yourself as an evangelist of the shorter work week? Or or how do you, how do you think about what, what you do? You know, I, I think I'm an evangelist of changing the way we perceive work generally, right? I think the thing that I love so much about four-day work weeks is it's a tangible change in behavior that feels like, a oh, I'm just going to lob a day off. But to do it well, we actually have to change so much about the way we work. But labor economist Dan Hammermesh says that what works at a small software company won't necessarily work for a huge swath of workers in industries like manufacturing, food service, healthcare. And that means that a fragmented movement to spread the four-day work week one company at a time isn't likely to move the needle on the U.S. economy as a whole. Unless, of course, the government sets a new standard for working hours, like it did during the Great Depression. I just don't think it's going to spread very widely unless it's mandated. 
And thus, again, we need this kind of change through policy, although I'm despairing of the democratic institutions being able to do that in this country. This is very depressing. I'm very depressed. Why are you depressed? Why is this depressing? I'm depressed. I would like the world to be better, okay? I mean, I spent all my life, from my adult life, 55 years now doing economics, partly with the aim of thinking of things that might make people, A, understand the world better, and B, do things to make the world better. And I just don't see very many changes happening along these dimensions that, in my view, would make the world better. So that's why I'm depressed, okay? Oh, poor Dan. Dan points out that the last time the United States government was able to pass major legislation about how we all work was during the largest economic crisis the world had ever seen. But right now, of course, we find ourselves in another moment of unprecedented economic upheaval. And it seems that a lot of the old rules about how we work are once again up for negotiation. Before the pandemic, for example, employers were real stingy about remote work. Now some big companies might be working from home forever. There's also the so-called Great Resignation. A record number of Americans, millions every month, are quitting their jobs because of things like burnout and low wages and long hours. And union membership is rising for the first time in decades, and labor is beginning to flex its muscle. At least 19 strikes were started in October. People have been calling it striketober. And it's becoming clear that a lot of how we work just isn't working. Now, it's important to remember the last time the U.S. came together to standardize the work week, it came with this whole smorgasbord of other changes to work life. A minimum wage, child labor laws, overtime, safety protection. Shortening work hours for the country would be a huge undertaking. And to pull it off, we'd also likely need fundamental changes to health care, child care, family leave. Because the work week, eight hours a day, five days a week, and the weekend, is the frame for everything else. It sets the cadence of our lives. For now. We have uh, lower wages for union members and non-union members in the right-to-work states. We have fewer benefits, health care, pension, retirement, etc. We have greater inequality in these states. We have much higher levels. We haven't talked about this, but uh, of discrimination, workplace mm-hmm. discrimination charges in these right-to-work states. Surely, when politicians fight for these, when these Past in these states, they must be arguing that there's something in the benefit of workers. Well, what is the pro right to work argument that that seems to carry the day? And what it's more than two dozen states now. Yeah, we're up in about twenty six states now. They claim that it brings jobs, that the corporations ah. will move there and they will create jobs. But again, facts don't lie, contrary to what Fox News wants you to believe. But the research from EPI and others have shown that the right-to-work laws have no impact on job growth. I mean, they went and looked at Oklahoma, which I think was in the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, that passed a right-to-work law. And they looked at the job creation before the law passed and after the law passed, and that there was no significant increase in jobs. In fact, manufacturing jobs actually declined in Oklahoma after the right to work law passed. And you know what? You don't have to take my word for it. There's a great YouTube video out there, a a video that's been posted on YouTube, but it was a video of the governor of West Virginia, Governor Justice, 
who signed into law a right to work law in West Virginia. And he, in a moment of honesty, was caught on camera in a town hall Zoom session this last year saying, really and truly, let's just be brutally honest. We passed the right to work law in West Virginia, and we ran to the windows looking to see all the people that were going to come, and they didn't come. We've absolutely built the field in a lot of different places thinking, build the field and they'll come, and they didn't come. It, it, right to work does not create jobs, and it's proven. One of the one of the things uh, we like to say in our podcast is, and we talk about this in regards to the minimum wage, which is when workers have more money, businesses have more customers and hire more workers. It's a it's a virtuous cycle. Well, right right to work. It it sounds as you're explaining it to me. It's a it's a vicious circle when workers have less money, businesses have fewer customers and hire fewer workers. Yep, that's exactly what it is. And the only one who benefits in this whole process are again, are the are the CEOs, are the Wall Street investors, are the are the 1% who are just getting richer off as wall workers fall further and further behind in this country. So, the House has passed the PRO Act which would eliminate this right to work for less provision. It's not the first time the House has tried to do it, but the the Democrats sort of control the Senate at the moment. What needs to be done to to get this through Congress? I'm so glad you asked that question. So the first step is we have 50 on paper Democrats in the U.S. Senate. Of those 50 Democrats, 47 of them have co-sponsored the PRO Act, are public supporters of the PRO Act. Two of them have been indicating uh, that they will vote to bring the bill to the floor. They'd like to see some changes to it, but they support the PRO Act, uh, the goals of the PRO Act. And that's Senator Mark Kelly from Arizona and Mark Warner from Virginia. So the two of them have not co-sponsored, but they have indicated that they support the PRO Act should it come to the floor. They'd like to see some changes, work on some changes, but would support passage of the PRO Act. That leaves us with Kirsten Cinema. All roadblocks seem to originate with Kirsten Cinema these days. And the interesting thing is, one of the most frustrating things for us in labor is, is that she will not meet with labor. She is not having conversations with labor. Her staff are not having conversations with labor. And I'm talking about Arizona labor, her constituents. But she has been recorded, and the videos are out there, of meeting with business groups to talk about the PRO Act and to to raise concerns about the PRO Act. But we're hopeful that, you know, in Alaska, the Republican congressman in Alaska enthusiastically supported the PRO Act. Alaska is one of those states that has a very high union density. And Republicans, believe it or not, even in Alaska, get it. Senator Murkowski, Lisa Murkowski, has not come out against the PRO Act. And so there's been a lot of conversations with her. We're hopeful she may support it to give us that 50th vote. We're hopeful that Kristen Sinema will see the light of day and will come around. But even if we get those 50 senators, we still have that damn filibuster standing in the way of real progress for working people. And so we have got to um, not only get the, get 50 Democrats or 50 senators on board with the PRO Act, but we have got to change the Senate rules to be able to get this done. Now, we're hopeful that some of the provisions of the PRO Act may make it into the budget reconciliation process. We believe that there's a very strong case to be made, and Bernie Sanders is one of those that's been working so hard on this, along with Sherrod Brown from Ohio and Bob Casey from Pennsylvania and others, to get provisions into the Reconciliation Act. For example, the penalties piece that we started off talking about. That is a revenue raiser for the government. 
of increasing those penalties. So we are very, very hopeful that it's not the transformative change that our labor laws in this country need, but there are things that can be done through the budget reconciliation, especially in terms of the penalties piece, or preventing corporations from deducting their expenses. You know, right now we are subsidizing corporations for running their union busting campaigns. Right, right. That's over $300 million a year that they're right. they're in deductions because that's what they're spending to uh, bust unions. Yep. And right now we subsidize that by allowing them to deduct that from their from their taxes. So that's why corporations like T-Mobile actually paid nothing in federal income taxes, because one of the things they've been doing is deducting their union busting expenses that they've spent over the last decade to stop the workers from there at T-Mobile from joining CWA. So we, we believe that's another tax code change that could be made through the reconciliation process that we no longer as taxpayers are subsidizing corporations for uh, running union busting uh, campaigns. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez as we look at the tragic shooting death of cinematographer Helena Hutchins during the filming of Rust last Thursday on a set in New Mexico. It's drawing attention to cost-cutting decisions and overall safety in the film industry. Yahoo News is reporting the gun that killed Helena had been used by crew members just hours beforehand for live ammunition target practice by some members of the crew who used the prop guns, including the gun that killed killed her to shoot at beer cans, a practice often called plinking. The film's lead actor and producer is Alec Baldwin. He later shot the revolver after he was reportedly handed it by the first assistant director, David Halls, who told him it was a cold gun, meaning it was not loaded with live ammunition. A search warrant says Baldwin was reportedly rehearsing a scene for the film and, quote, pointing the revolver towards the camera lens when it hit Helena Hutchins and director Joel Souza. Meanwhile, prop maker Maggie Gole, a member of IATSE, that's the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, Local 44, told CNN she'd worked with the assistant um, uh, director, Halls, in 2019 and said he failed to hold safety meetings or follow protocol when it came to announcing the presence of firearms on set. CNN also reported Halls was fired in 2019 from his position as assistant director on the movie Freedom's Path after a gun unexpectedly discharged and injured a crew member. All this happened after some of the unionized IATSE below-the-line crew members had walked off the set of Rust earlier on the day Helena was killed to protest their housing, payment, and working conditions. A source told Yahoo News a walkout would usually shut down the film's production for a couple days. But New Mexico is a right-to-work state, so producers were able to hire non-union replacements and continue working on the film. A couple hours later, Helena was killed. For more, we're joined by Dutch Merrick. He's past president of IATSE Local 44, Hollywood craftspersons in Altadena, California. He's been a prop master and armorer for over 25 years. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Dutch. Thanks so much for getting in touch with us. You are an armorer, and you can explain what that is, and explain what you understand happened on this set, going to, in the context of these negotiations that IATSE is having nationwide, 60,000 members, partly around issues of safety, just like this. Good morning, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. 
Um, this is a, a one symptom of an existential crisis in Hollywood. Um, Hollywood handles, we handle firearms every single day. I work on big shows where we have machine guns firing, 10, 20 people firing machine guns at once, and it happens safely. We literally fire millions of blank rounds every year, and it's a very safe process. It's carefully regulated. Uh, we go through permits and training. The armorer handles the gun from a locked-up safe. They take it to the set. They're very careful about inspecting the weapons at all times and make sure they're clear, and they only load them just before we go. And only the armor touches them. They hand them directly to the actor, and they get the scene. In this instance, the first assistant director was handling the gun. We're trying to figure out why that happened, and the guns clearly were mishandled and not locked up and allowed to use for actual gunfire shooting, which is, I've never heard of that in my 25 years in the business. It's it's unconscionable that you would take your movie guns and put live ammo in them ever, ever. Uh, the crew was, uh, the camera crew walked off the morning of because the conditions had become so deplorable. They had gone three weeks without a paycheck. They were having to work 14 plus hours a day with inadequate turnaround to get home. Uh, when I started in the business 25 years ago, I was putting in 12-hour days knowing that I was you know, cutting my teeth in the business and it would only get better from there, but it's only gotten worse. Our workers routinely face 16-plus-hour days, day in and day out, putting in 80 to 100-hour weeks, and uh, the, the producers only have to pay a minor penalty if they want to work our crews through lunch. That penalty hasn't risen in, in ages, often shows now to satiate the growing hunger of uh, for entertainment and increasing quality and, and to produce it in a shorter time, they're pushing our workers to work straight through lunch and work entire days, and they pay them a minor penalty, and it's grinding our workers to the bone. And with this contract that's come up, uh, every worker that I've talked to, with few exceptions, is not happy with it. And But, uh, Dutch, I wanted to ask you precisely about that, the impact of the the growth of streaming videos uh, from uh, companies like Netflix and Hulu and Apple. What has been the impact on the working conditions as a result of basically this vast commodification of more and more video production? Yeah, the hunger, you know, the pandemic put into high relief that people not only they don't wait for seven o'clock on Thursday night to see Seinfeld once a week. They get a show they like and they binge watch 13 episodes in a sitting. There's a, a voracious appetite for content that Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and others are feeding. So the competition is fiercer than ever. We have trouble finding enough crew to populate these shows just to fill the jobs finding trucks and equipment and stages. Everything is overbooked. We're literally in overdrive to fulfill the need. When Netflix was buying existing content and recycling old series, that was one thing, but now they're creating brand new content. And we're grateful for the work, but we're frankly getting worked to death to just meet the demands. We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, discussing Striketober and the Great Resignation. In the Thick, in two parts, analyzed what has driven workers to quit and addressed the racial and immigration status impact on labor organizing. The Takeaway discussed the abuse and harassment endemic to the service industry and tipped wage jobs in particular. Planet Money looked at the idea of a four-day work week. 
Pitchfork Economics explained the PRO Act to support labor and the political realities of getting it passed, and Democracy Now! drew the connections between poor working conditions, labor struggles, and the on-set shooting involving Alec Baldwin. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips including The Strange World of Econ diving into the history of the economic and labor impacts of the Black Plague and Planet Money, telling the story of how the 40-hour workweek came to be. And we also just want to add that we've included an article in the show notes that outlines five ways you can support striking workers from wherever you are, so we encourage everyone to take a look and identify how you can show solidarity. Now, to have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestleft.com slash support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. Asked. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Bud from Idaho. Just listening to your propaganda episode, and there's a few conflicting statements in there that nag at me. Not that I think any of them are untrue, just taken together, they bother me. One is that the United States has 5% of the population and 25% of the incarcerated population in the world. The other statement is that incarceration doesn't really help. Another statement is that incarceration has been growing. And then the last statement that really nags at me is that violent crime in general has gone down. So where these all bother me is that taken together, someone on the right would say, yeah, we're putting people in jail, we're keeping them off the street, and crime is going down. So it's just hard for me to uh, put that all together in a, in a way that makes sense to a guy who's on the left, who wants to reduce incarceration, who wants more effective criminal deterrence than uh, incarceration. Because we, we all do know recidivism is at least like 50%. So that would be one thing that would argue against incarceration. So I'm just wondering, is there a, a unifying theory here that you have, especially, you know, we incarcerate more and crime has gone down. It's natural to attach those two things together. And the idea that, say, for instance, going to unleaded fuel and having less lead in our environment has contributed more than mass incarceration it's kind of a weak uh, argument, especially if you're arguing, arguing with someone on the left. Anyway, uh, any uh, enlightenment you can get me on, on these, I would appreciate. And I don't know if anybody else is thinking the same way, but sometimes nuance can be confusing. So I hope you can help. Keep doing what you're doing. Thanks, Jay. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. So thanks to Bud for the question. I'm going to dive into these one by one and and come to what I think is a you know decently uh, reasonable conclusion. So the first statement he was questioning is uh, about the 5% of the world population being in the U.S., but 25% of the incarcerated population. 
And this, of course, is comparing the U.S. to other nations as opposed to comparing it to itself over time. And so I think that speaks to the next quote, which was incarceration doesn't really help. And I think that's when those nation to nation comparisons really come in handy because the incarceration rate in the U.S. is so high that you would imagine that even if there were other factors playing into the crime rate, which there are, that our incredibly high incarceration rate would overcome any other factors in maybe working against us and keeping crime rates low, and it is not. So that that is where those two fit together, I think, quite nicely. And then uh, incarceration has been growing is one of the quotes that Bud mentioned. And this, I, I would need to check and, and find where that was in the show. I, I did a search in the transcript and couldn't quite find it. And I don't think that's true, at least not on the national level. So if someone had said incarceration has been growing, but there were caveats or specifications or, you know, in a specific place or whatever, then that may have been said and could still be accurate. But on the national level, incarceration has not been growing. It seems like incarceration peaked around 2009 and has been on a sort of slow glide path down since then. Not not fast or anything, but, you know, a, a slow descent. And, and then the last quote is, violent crime has gone down. And I completely understand the confusion that that statement could cause. I could say that it's a classic correlation doesn't mean causation kind of scenario. But in this case, there isn't even a lot of correlation because it depends on what time frame you're talking about. So, for instance... The U.S. prison population began to climb sharply in the mid-70s. That's when it began to pick up. The war on drugs officially kicked in in the early 80s, and prison populations just went up, 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 you know, a very steep curve. But crime didn't peak until the 90s. So we had sort of a 20-year experiment with the process of mass incarceration as crime only climbed throughout that 20-year experiment. And then to try to flesh out this concept a little bit more, I went and found an article from the Sentencing Project, which you know, has all the criminal justice facts and details and explanations. And so they write, incarceration has some impact on crime, but the impact is of diminishing returns. Crime rates have declined substantially since the early 90s, but studies suggest that rising imprisonment has not played a major role in this trend. The National Research Council concluded that while prison growth was a factor in reducing crime, the magnitude of the crime reduction remains highly uncertain, and the evidence suggests it was unlikely to have been large. Several factors explain why this impact was relatively modest. First, incarceration is particularly ineffective at reducing certain kinds of crime, in particular youth crimes, many of which are committed in groups, and drug crimes. When people get locked up for these offenses, they are easily replaced on the streets by others seeking an income or struggling with addiction. 
Second, people tend to age out of crime. Research shows that crime starts to peak in the mid to late teenage years and begins to decline when individuals are in their mid-twenties. After that, crime drops sharply as adults reach their 30s and 40s. The National Research Council study concludes, Because recidivism rates decline markedly with age, Lengthy prison sentences, unless they are specifically targeting very high rate or extremely dangerous offenders, are an inefficient approach to preventing crime by incapacitation. As a result, the excessive sentencing practices in the U.S. are largely counterproductive and extremely costly. So for me, the two big takeaways are, when comparing to other countries— Other countries get better results with very, very different policies towards incarceration. And then when comparing the U.S. to itself over time, the incarceration rate and the crime rate do not correlate. Raising the incarceration rate may have some impact on crime, but not much. And so the crime rates and the incarceration rates do not generally correlate. There are fluctuations in both. There can be a minor impact, but that is not the primary driving force of lowering crime rates. But with that settled, luckily, Bud called back in with a much more important question. Hi, Jay. This is Bud from Idaho again. It's kind of off subject, but your episode about propaganda, again, towards the end, you're comparing the cult of uh, flat earthers to the cult of being in law enforcement. And, uh, I'm just curious, as far as the flat earthers, whenever you uh, went down that rabbit hole and were looking at it, do any of them claim they were ever to the edge? That's something I've never heard. I have more heard conspiracy theories about how no one's seen the curve. But, yeah, it's it's puzzling. It. I've never heard of anyone being to the edge, and I've also never heard any arguments about why round-the-world cruises aren't really around the world. But I imagine there is something. Anyway, keep doing what you're doing. Take it easy. Excellent and important questions, but I am happy to answer those for you. I'm going to do it in reverse order, though. So, first, to describe how the flat earth looks to people who believe in flat earth, uh, of which I am not one. I just uh, checked in on them and learned learned their ways for a little while um, a few years ago. So, the earth is a disk in their projection. The North Pole is in the middle of the disk, and Antarctica is not a continent as we imagine it. It is the ring that encircles the disk. That is how they envision it. So it's not an island on the South Pole of the planet. It is a ring of ice, which I think they argue sort of is what's keeping the oceans in. I'd have to check on that. So the round of the world cruises, they agree that those happen, and you can go in a circle around the world on a disk. You just aren't going around a globe. That's their uh, envisioning of round the world cruises. But why have they not taken an expedition to Antarctica, you know, hiked out to the edge and looked over? Um, The answer is that they give, at least uh, the one I'm aware of, is that secret international, probably militaries, are preventing anyone from going to Antarctica. If you go, you'll be stopped by a series of warships that will 
uh, not allow you to get close to Antarctica so that you can't go to the edge. And that is part of the conspiracy and you know the, the way NASA and the UN and all of the other space agencies of the world all collectively maintain the falsehood of the globe Earth for reasons that really begin to break down because they claim it's mostly about money, which I, you know, follow the money. It makes some degree of sense, right? But they're talking about how, you know, everyone in NASA is helping to maintain this conspiracy so that they can get that sweet, sweet NASA money, which as anyone who's a fan of space knows is something like one half of 1% of the U S federal budget. So it's not like they're actually getting rich off of it. This isn't like the military industrial complex. Uh, although I don't know, maybe they assume those guys are in on it too, but yeah, I mean, they usually point to NASA and they usually talk about all those billions of dollars that NASA is getting, which when compared to the actual budget of the country or the world is an absolute pittance. So, you know, it doesn't really stand up to scrutiny. No one should be surprised by that. But but the answer is no, they haven't been to the edge because uh, some shadowy military forces are preventing them from going. So again, thanks for asking. Happy to enlighten anyone on that topic anytime. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, web mastering, and bonus show co-hosting and thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestoftheleft.com support or from right inside the apple podcast app membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes for details on the show itself including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode all that information can always be found in the show notes on our website and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bestoftheleft.com